This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. This week on the show, we present a Skype conversation pre-recorded on March 30th, 2019 with Terry Danielle, Reverend Terry Danielle, M-A-C-T, C-C-T-P, is a clinical chaplain, certified trauma specialist, and end-of-life educator, certified in death, dying, and bereavement by the Association of Death Education and Counseling. The focus of her work is to assist dying and grieving individuals to discover a more spiritually spacious understanding of death and beyond. Terry conducts workshops throughout the U.S. to help the dying and the bereaved find healing through meditative, ritual, and therapeutic processes that focus on inner transformation rather than external events. Her work is acclaimed by physicians, hospice workers, grief counselors, clergy, and the bereaved for its pinpoint clarity on the process of dying and grieving and its heartfelt depiction of consciousness beyond the physical body. Terry's interest in the journey of the soul through birth and death began at age 12 when she began having mystical visions that sparked a lifelong interest in spirituality. But it wasn't until the death of her 16-year-old son in 2006 that she immersed herself in studying multicultural religious traditions and metaphysical practices that help the dying and the living find healing through meditative and ritual processes that open a conduit to other dimensions. Her unique form of radical mysticism incorporates elements of Buddhism, shamanism, ancient pagan practices, Gnostic Christianity, and other spiritual traditions to break down limiting beliefs about forgiveness, divine judgment, and negative experience. Terry is the author of three books on death and the afterlife, A Swan in Heaven, Conversations Between Two Worlds, Embracing Death, A New Look at Grief, Gratitude, and God, and Turning the Corner on Grief Street, Loss and Trauma as a Journey to Awakening. She is also the founder of the Afterlife Education Foundation and producer of the annual Afterlife Awareness Conference, her academic credentials include a B.A. in Religious Studies from Marlhurst University, an M.A. in Pastoral Care from Fordham University, and a Doctor of Ministry degree from the San Francisco Theological Seminary. Terry, Danielle, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Love being here. Well, we'd like to, uh, um, because this is your second time on the show, we'd like to invite you to update us on... Um, I mean, we know one of the things that's happened, you, you have completed your uh, Doctorate of Ministry the degree, but, um, and we, we certainly want to talk about that at greater length, but what else, uh, what, what have you been up to since you last appeared on the show? Well, let's see. Um, uh, the Afterlife Conference, of course, happens every year, and I think last year when I was on the show, we were just about to have the conference, so that was our eighth year. We're now entering our ninth it's going to be in Salt Lake City this year, which is really easy to get to from Santa Rosa. And we've got an amazing lineup, as we always do. But this year, I've really tried to bring in 
more mystical stuff that goes, how would I say this, really mystical but not woo-woo, if that makes sense. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I'd like you to uh, maybe elaborate on that distinction because, uh, <laughs> uh, really, because that, that distinction is something that's central to what we try to discriminate on this show, and uh, uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Oh, good. Okay. Well, and, you know, I don't want to disparage anybody, but after doing this conference for nine years, I get pitched all the time by people who want to come and speak at the conference, and there really is a distinction. So, for example, we have as a keynote this year a guy by the name of Phil Borges. He is a filmmaker and photographer who travels around the world and lives with indigenous people in India, Tibet, South America, China, Africa, and he produces these beautiful films and books all about their spiritual lives, hmm. the spiritual lives of indigenous people. And he goes and he lives with these people and he practices their rituals and with them. So to me, that's, that guy's the real deal. And, and by contrast, more on the woo-woo side, I will get people pitching me saying, I want to speak at your conference, I'm a shaman. Right. And I'm like, okay, where did you study? How, how were you initiated? And they don't even know what initiated means. They're not a shaman. They're just somebody who went to a shaman weekend course somewhere, or maybe they even went on a trip to Peru and studied, but you don't call yourself a shaman if you're not initiated. Or maybe they took a drug uh, or something like that. Yeah, so I get a lot of wannabes. Um, This is particularly true with mediums and intuitives and channelers. Everybody's a medium. Everybody's channeling. They're dead someone. And um, I really want people with training and credentials and experience. So that's where I draw that. That's that's not nice. that's really refreshing to hear, and the term "woo" usually causes my uh, uh, hair to go up on my back because it's often used in a disparaging way about anything that is uh, non-scientific and non-materialistic. Uh, I, I definitely hear this in the discourse of when people will talk about anything spiritual if they're if they are of a logical or uh, positivistic uh, point of view and I really like the distinction you're describing there because I have no problem with people reporting uh, uh, strange and, uh, and, and unusual and unexplainable experiences and things that suggest possibilities well beyond what we can prove or to you know establish but it's 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 people who take an experience and then create this whole narrative about it without any sort of uh, uh, grounding in further experience, training, as you say, maybe even verification from people who have a tradition. And and so you can usually tell the difference. We, we get this uh, uh, quite a bit with people who want to speak in our bookstore. And you, you can tell when someone is just kind of playing the game versus someone who's put the work in. Yeah, that's a really good way to say it. I like putting the work in and grounding. I'll give you a really good example. In in the afterlife world, in in the world of afterlife research, there are two really popular authors and speakers. I'm not going to even say their names, but both of them are people who have had a near-death experience, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, they feel qualified to be spiritual teachers. And, and, one, and these people are very famous. And one of them on her Facebook page, people are actually, you know, she's got like a million followers and her book is a bestseller. People are asking her questions like, what is God? <laughs> what are we? Why are we here? And yes, she had a spiritually transformative experience. She did leave her body and go on a journey when she was clinically dead. But she and, and the other person I'm thinking of like this, um, what I think they should have done after that is then go get some training. Go live in a monastery for a year. Go study with some real shamans in an indigenous tribe somewhere and actually study and learn instead of jumping right off the operating table onto the podium and calling yourself a teacher. And I get that there's value in just sharing the story of the near-death experience, but I think that a lot of them take it too far when they get these big followings and best-selling books, and all they've done is teach and preach, and they haven't actually learned. In a number of ways, thank you. The, in a number of ways, this this reminds me of, of some of the. Uh, it, it's 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 a bit of a stretch, but in you know East Asian Buddhism, there came to be um, an understanding that there could be different ways that so-called enlightenment would be experienced by people. And one of the dangers is that if someone has a profound experience through meditation practice, early, especially early on, um, to extend that, overextend its significance, its meaning, its uh, relevance to the rest of your life in particular. And this this sounds similar to that. People people just take one particular moment or set of moments of of their personal experience and just, uh, as Stuart said earlier, uh, create a story around it. Yeah, create a narrative around it and and create an identity around it. And yeah, then right. you know, then someone will walk around saying, "I'm a Buddhist. I'm a shaman. I'm a medium." Right. And and you know, I. If I had to pick a particular theology that I align with the most, it would be Buddhism. But I don't call myself a Buddhist because I don't have a practice. Right. Right. And, well, and I've, ne- I've never formally really studied Buddhism other than what I've read here and there. So I don't get to call myself a Buddhist, and I would never. Yeah, the, uh, the other danger to me with the, this phenomenon that you're describing is the... Um, and, and we're going to have... I'm trying to get someone on the show to talk about this explicitly because because certainly in Sebastopol with a spiritual bookstore etc and and the set of friends and acquaintances we have um, we see people making claims all the time in in the way that you're you're describing but one of the things with my anthropological uh, background training you know that's where I have my PhD um, is that I see that people who call themselves shamans without any, as you say, grounding in in actual lived experience with um, over time with with uh, the people for whom the shaman role is an actual well-defined, not in a, not in an analytical sense, but well-defined by through through lived experience. You you see these people. Um, claiming that role, and it's actually a, a, a disres- disrespectful ripoff. 
of indigenous culture in a way that um, has long been criti criticized by anthropologists who see that happening, and yet, um, man, has it gotten popular lately. It has, and it's called cultural appropriation, right? Isn't that what they call it? Exactly. And, you know, that, it's a funny thing because I use a lot of multicultural processes in my workshops and in my counseling practice and in my teaching because I have gone to, I have done trainings with shamans. I would never call myself a shaman or even a practitioner, but I have some of the techniques that I learned from my shaman teachers and I use them and I always feel guilty, like, am I doing this kind of shallow cultural appropriation where I've never actually sat with a shaman in Peru and made a despacho or a kintu. I've only done that in Utah in a retreat with a teacher who's a white American woman. You know, so I feel like, am I even allowed to do that? And where where do we draw the line? Can I use those techniques, but it's okay as long as I don't call myself a shaman? I well, don't know. I, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, this is this is a great question, and the reason I appreciate your articulating it in the way you are is precisely that um, when you're asking your when you're continually asking yourself this kind of question, you're much less likely to s step off the edge <laughs> and uh, make the inappropriate claims that that are that our egos want to want to want to do and mm. and and that that in itself is important you know i have a similar thing uh, you know we have a a, a native american native californian a pomo friend dear dear friend and practitioner who's a a, a very talented um uh, healer and um and she's been encouraging me to um go to places along these lines that that I have been highly reluctant to go to but um I and I'll only do it with her imprimatur and her participation frankly um because I I don't <laughs> I'm so I'm so leery of claiming things inappropriately um along these lines and so when you're asking yourself this this sort of question you're much less likely to make the kind of uh, grandiose errors that were that you've just been discussing well yeah because you're talking about humility and yeah. respect right you know and so um i think that the people who don't have that humility and respect you can you can spot them a mile away i mean i see them all the time reaching out to me wanting to speak at my conference and uh, the way they identify themselves and the things that they claim i just i just roll my eyes i mean i it, I, it is so annoying to me. Um, yeah. Well, I, and that—that's—I uh, think Rob. I like the way Rob put it. That the you know, it's the sense of respect, the sense of humility, that word that you used, that is so important with taking and holding, holding with respect a method, a tradition, an expression, um, uh, a piece of clothing, even uh, that comes out of a tradition. I think if you really approach it that way, then I don't think the question of appropriation comes up in, or is, comes up in the same way. And, and then there are people, as you describe, who are using this to cloak their identity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a, 
it's an interesting phenomenon for me because I, I, when I think about spiritual practice and some of the kind of the deeper truth that is conveyed in a, a long-term practice, it has to do with our relationships to this thing we call self. And I, I agree, I think some of the Buddhist expression is uh, very clear on this, that what we think of as self, what we think of as identity, isn't really what our minds uh, present up to us. And so you, it's very possible to have interesting, extreme, bizarre, mystical experiences, but when we come back from that space and re-inhabit our uh, egoic selves, um, if from that we draw a new identity or create or sort of uh, uh, reify the ego in a much much deeper way, I think you know that that's when we sort of stray from the path of what those experiences are intended to show to us. And I think, as you say, you you can spot people like that who have just created a new identity, and it, it doesn't matter what the tradition is. They can be shamans, they can be born again Christians, they can be. Uh, uh, you know, fundamentalist Muslims, uh, you you can take these uh, profound, legitimate, real experiences, and I don't want to deny people's experiences along these lines, but when you bring it back and then use it to reinforce the ego, it stops being spiritual. That's well said. And you, I like what you said about holding it. It's all about how you hold it. Because appropriating stuff from these other cultures is actually important. I mean, a, a big part of my doctoral dissertation was about how important it is to learn from other cultures so that we can get outside of our doctrinal boxes, you know, that we are stuck in for coping with grief and loss. I mean, that's, that's kind of my whole thing is about the dangers of toxic theology for people who are traumatized and dealing with loss. And if you only have a, a little small packaged doctrine through which to understand your losses and your experience, you're going to get pretty stuck. And so you need to open that up and, and study other cultures and see other ways of thinking, which we've been able to do in the last 20 years or so because of the Internet. So now you can go anywhere online and watch a shamanic ceremony or watch an African grief ritual or anything anywhere and that's fantastic I mean I, it's so important that we have that so it's really about how you hold that information as you said is how do we use that with the proper respect without claiming it and I think the indigenous people would probably agree with that and I'll tell you a, a little story about that um, somebody I know it, uh, she and her husband are doctors, and they travel all over the world to third world countries to do volunteer medicine, which is great. But they do something in these countries that annoys me to no end, is in these little villages where they go, after they've done like a week of volunteer medicine, they tell the people in the tribe, we love your culture and we want to get married in your tribal tradition. They're already married. They're a married couple. And so they give the tribe some money, and they throw them a wedding. And this couple now has pictures of themselves getting married in Kenya, in Tierra del Fuego, in India, in uh, 
Chile and Tibet and Japan and all these places where they've gone and they have a wedding in every culture and they get are dressed up in the traditional native costumes and everything and they think this is really cool. I think it's disgraceful. Well, it sounds like notches on the bedpost, actually. Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, on the one hand, I can see their, their from their uh, uh, worldview. You know, they're making friends in these places, and they think they probably genuinely think they're respecting these traditions, and and they're going to help people. And uh, you know, in that sense, uh, you know, more power to them. But on the other hand, if you really peel back the activity there's a an interesting power relationship there's a way in which you're taking difference and people's differences and using that as a prop in your uh, self-narrative and that's where it starts to uh, cease being fun and assertive and, and more unseemly a prop in your self-narrative. Boy, I wish I had that phrase when I talked to those people about that. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. Again, it's how you hold it. So if they really loved this tradition, say the Kenyan wedding ceremony tradition, I would respect it if they took the time to study it, to go into some sort of meditation with the tribal medicine person and be initiated in some way, and, and really go into it. They don't do that. They just have a wedding and take pictures and put it all over the Internet. And so if I ask them, like, well, so in that little village in China where you did that, you know, what, are, what is their theology? What is, what is their belief system about this? And what does the symbol of this ceremony particular thing mean? They don't have a clue. Well, the, well, the other word that's common in, in uh, anthropological speak here is commodification, and oh. and what 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 you're describing to me is is a, is a classic commodification. And because they've got money, and mm -hmm. these other these people, you know, um, that they're um, spending a little bit of time with, don't have money, and can use the money, they're they're actually creating a, 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 an economy that um, that leaves those people that defines those people as poor when actually if they were respecting those people they would realize that they that that the native people that they're hanging out with those are the ones with the cultural wealth mm. and and they don't get to you know if and if they use money to um commodify and then appropriate um the commodity of whatever whatever thing they're doing in this case you know the weddings um, then they're they're sort of doubly disrespecting um, what they imagine that they're honoring. <laughs> yeah, that's so well said. When I look at their website with all these pictures, I call it culture porn. Yeah, yeah. that's a good way to put yeah, it. That's culture that, porn. That, 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 that's excellent. <laughs> well, it's it's an interesting phenomenon because we see this. Uh, uh, with lots of different ways in which people pull from other traditions, and uh, but it, it's all the status seeking, and, and social media is, I think, a you know uniquely positioning us to new and various ways of uh, uh, conveying status. And as you said, you know this this 
way of taking these experiences, putting them on a website, uh, and conveying your status is that's where I feel like appropriation comes from. Because you could, they could do the exact same thing, but if they never talked about it or if they held with reverence each of these ceremonies and maybe only showed the pictures to very, very close friends, uh, it would be a very different thing than putting it on a website that basically just screams, look at me. Right. Or if they just got married, their real actual marriage in a culture that they really resonate with, that would have meaning. Like my friend Ariel Ford got married many, many years ago in Bali. You know, she intentionally went to Bali and, and worked with a priest and created a ceremony because she resonated with the Buddhism that's practiced there. And that was her real wedding that she had one time in her life, just once. Mm-hmm. And, and that was her real wedding. It wasn't a pretend wedding. Yeah, we're... we're yeah. We're about to go to Austin at the end of, uh, in about a month, and go to a uh, quite traditional uh, Hindu um, wedding uh, of some friends, uh, friends of ours, and um, and they have, they're they're going to be having, <laughs> I think, a pretty pretty darn authentic um, uh, ceremony. Um, and not just Hindu, but actually, it's you know um, they're having a guy named Robert Svoboda uh, officiate at the ceremony, who's written a, a ton of books about various aspects of Hindu culture. And I and I and I think you know it, it's going to be in, in, outside Austin, Texas, right. of, all, of all places. And they're, they're, neither of them are uh, ethnically Indian, right? But but I mean, even even the the guy doing the uh, ceremony. Uh, he put the work in. I mean, he, he's a, yeah. uh, a teacher in a tradition, studied with a teacher in Pune, uh, uh, in India, in this tantric path, the agoric path that is, and, and uh, he put the time in. And, mm-hmm. and, and so there's something very different there than someone putting the robes on and thinking they can suddenly call themselves a priest. Yeah, and another place where I see that too, again with the people at my conference, is um, kind of jumping into another world here, but mm-hmm. how many people I see who are call themselves Reverend Doctor, or they have a, a PhD at, in metaphysics <laughs> from, from the University of Metaphysics, which is a diploma <laughs> mill. I didn't even know there existed such yeah. a thing, but, I, I, but I'm not surprised. I imagine after just finishing your dissertation that you probably oh, have even well, less tolerance for oh that. Oh, my God. And I mean, Google the University of Metaphysics. It's an online oh my God. thing. It's all over. They have like you know offices all over the country, and you can get a Ph.D. in metaphysics in six months. Oh, my God. And I know two people who have done this. Mm-hmm. And one of them asked me if I would help her with her, quote, dissertation. Mm-hmm. And she sent it to me. It was about 25 pages long. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a normal dissertation is like 200 pages, right? And her references weren't even academic references. They were like pop psychology books, you know, Marianne Williamson, you know, things like that. It's right. pretty funny. It makes me so sad. And so, you know, there are people handing out these bogus degrees too and people claiming them 
yeah. which is annoying as all, as all get out. Yeah, and well, it's it, it. I think it's like it's as Stuart mentioned a moment ago. It's about people claiming status, and and the truth is that people with eyes to see mm-hmm. recognize the 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 degree of value in those as compared to someone who puts in the time, as you put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is a good topic, and um, there's actually another topic that is occurring to me that kind of jumps off of this, which yeah. is uh, I talk about this a lot, and because you know theology is a really big part of my work, and um, I very frequently make the comparison between let's call it woo-woo theology mm-hmm. and traditional. Uh, Abrahamic, you know, Judeo-Christian theology. So I, I go on a big rant quite often about the way people characterize the law of attraction mm-hmm. and the book, the book, The Secret, just yeah. makes me want to scream and pull my hair out. <laughs> and, and so the thing about that is, and I hear this from people all the time, they'll come up to me and they'll go, I'm so spiritual and I meditate all the time and I say positive affirmations and when I have a negative thought in my meditation I just push it away and replace it with a positive thought and I visualize health and wealth and love but my life is still a mess and I can't pay my bills and I'm sick and I'm all alone and I must not be manifesting the law of attraction very well and I just want to say oh you poor dear (laughs) you know because that is the same theology of if you say your Hail Marys, if you go to church, if you, if you obey the rules, the dogma, and the doctrine, then you will be rewarded by a God that you know, likes some people better than other people and rewards you for good behavior. It's the exact same theology wearing a different coat. Well, you, thank you for that, because uh, uh, what, what you're bringing to mind is... A contrast with um, the sort of folks who, uh, you know, monastics, for example, in the Christian tradition, who will engage in in this practice where they're constantly contemplating the Psalms. They're, you know, they read the Psalms, they uh, let that um, those the words of the Psalms. Uh, seep into their being and the psalms are not it's not a bunch of positive affirmations it's it's actually often about loss about mm-hmm. um you know uh, pain suffering wailing that god isn't listening to me <laughs> yeah they're, they're technically called the laments ah yeah exactly yeah. so so it's like you know and that's that's the practices that's a set of practices that um, are engaged in by people who who are not who are not just dipping in to erase their suffering, um, which which I think is is one way to characterize the phenomenon you were just describing. But but it's actually people who are engaging with the reality of of life and 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 creating a relationship to it that has that has interconnections in all aspects of experience. Yeah, it's a healthy relationship with suffering. Hmm. Yeah, I, or, oh, go ahead. 
Yeah, well, versus the idea of this, you know, law of attraction thing. I mean, there is a law of attraction, but it doesn't work that way. You know, you, you attract it. I mean, everything that you get is what you're here to get, the good and the bad. You don't get to pick only happy things. Right. But, um, you know, the idea that you can just wish for total happiness all the time and avoid suffering is ridiculous. And it's a very unhealthy relationship yeah, with suffering. The the one one distinction that I wanted to draw between the uh, as you put it the Abrahamic religions and the the mode that you were describing with the law of attraction is there's even one di- distinction that in the Abrahamic religions like if you're if you're doing your uh, hail marys and things like that there is still at least a moment where one is configuring oneself as uh, subject to something larger than them and that there's a moment or a possibility of a kind of a humility or a release of the egoic control of our experience that is possible on that avenue that um, when you use something like the law of attraction or that whole framework uh, the danger there is that it's like I'm completely in control you know, it's like my, uh, from an egoic point of view, it's like uh, I'm the author of my experiences. And you sort of, then then you don't even have the possibility of letting go. You have this uh, uh, existential confusion when life moves on and your intentions don't seem to uh, have an effect. Yes, and that's and that's how they actually describe that way of thinking. I and mean, I'm going to just call it a theology is that you are in control of your reality. What you think is what you will create. And that sounds just lovely, but you know, I don't think, um, it's just so, it produces guilt and shame. Exactly. The, the exactly. same way, yeah, the same way the Abrahamic religions do. Yeah. It, it produces shame. It means, you know, if I'm poor or I'm sick, I must have done something wrong. I'm not being holy enough, I'm not practicing properly. I mean the whole you know the whole Hebrew tradition is based on that that and you know uh, have you guys ever read um Richard Elliot Friedman? No, no. He's like the leading scholar on the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Bible they call it now they don't call it the Old and New Testament anymore. Um, and he says the reason we came up with this guilt Thing and this punishing God idea is that the people who later became the Jewish people, the Israelites, mm-hmm. um, they were telling these stories of creation, you know, Genesis and Exodus and all this mythology for a thousand years before they ever wrote it down. And they didn't write it down until they were in captives in, in exile in Babylon, which right. was about 500 BC. And so when they start, they said, we better start writing this down or we're going to, you know, it's going to get lost. Mm-hmm. So when they started writing, they were expressing the suffering that they were experiencing um, under the rule of these oppressors, and so they projected that character onto the god that they were describing. And they felt this was the beginning of monotheism. So as as Friedman says, in a polytheistic culture, if something's going wrong, if your enemies are, are defeating you, you can say that their God was more powerful than your God. But if there's only one God, and it's yours, 
uh, and you're still in trouble and you're suffering, then the only conclusion is that you've done something to anger God. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's that that's how how it would be because I mean the way I would you know characterize it is it, what what's happening is you're judging your experience and then you're projecting your judgment of your experience onto this supernatural deity. Yes. And and it's 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 basically um an arrogant decision that you know how things really are. <laughs> yeah, well there you have there you have the world of uh theology and the clergy and everything else, you know. I mean, one of one of my favorite professors once said to me, when talking about theology, nobody knows what they're talking about. <laughs> But it's a fun conversation to have. Right. <laughs> well, well, maybe this is a this is an opportunity then to get you to talk about your recently completed uh, doctorate of ministry. Uh, so, if I mean, it, give people you know the um, I mean people people know about PhD piled higher and deeper, right? But they may not know what a doctorate of uh, ministry is about specifically. So first, set that context if you would and then talk about your own specific yeah. work. Yeah, I, I, I find myself having to explain this a lot because mm-hmm. every, everybody thinks I have a PhD, which I don't. So um, there's a lot of different kinds of doctorates. The PhD, Doctor of Philosophy, is a research degree. You, you pick a topic and you spend six, seven years researching this very specific topic. Like, um, Rob, what was yours? Uh, in uh, anthropological archaeology, that's the, the the area. My dissertation title was "Sex and Gender uh, Variation in the Southern Scandinavian Mesolithic." See, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> it's it's that specific, yeah. and so that's a PhD. It's research, and then you're supposed to research a topic that no one's ever done before. Right. And it's for the purpose of putting it into the body of literature. My um, degree is the same as a medical doctor. It's the same kind of degree as an MD or a, a JD jurisprudence, which is the a lawyer degree or a doctor of education. Mm-hmm. There's also a PsyD, PSY for psychology. Mm-hmm. This is considered a professional practice degree, right. not, a, not a research degree. So there's a very big difference. And, and these degrees, just like an MD for a doctor, are for you to go out into the world and practice something. Right. So in my case, the thing that I'm practicing is ministry, specifically teaching, and the concentration is in something called pastoral care and counseling. Hmm. So it's essentially, uh, you know, a credential in spiritual counseling. So is there a uh, dissertation associated with that? Is there? A, oh yeah. Uh, and then, and there must be also some level of uh, uh, certified practice time. Uh, is that, yeah. is that correct? Uh, well, not certified. Pra- there's not like supervised clinical practice or anything like that. Um, but of course, there's a dissertation. My dissertation uh, is called "Toxic Theology as a Contributing Factor in Complicated Grief." Okay. And complicated grief is is well known in psychology these days, relatively new, um, which is there is 
we know that there's sort of what we would call a normal trajectory of grief healing. If, you know, in certain milestones of time, you should be able to regain functioning and regain equilibrium to a certain degree in certain ways, depending on the kind of loss that you've had. So, for example, if, if your 87-year-old father dies, this is a normal and expected and natural loss. And if you just sink into the pits of despair and stay that way for, say, six months, you know, drinking every day and not able to get out of bed and not functioning, there's obviously something deeper going on there than just your 87-year-old father died. You know, there's issues of guilt and who knows what. That's complicated grief. Mm. Even if it's a, a really traumatic loss, like a child dying, there is a normal trajectory of healing. So say, for example, three years later, you should be pretty functional again and not crying every day and able to work and have social relationships and, and all these criteria. But for a lot of people, that doesn't happen. And it's called complicated grief. And one of the things that I found in my workshops and classes that I teach with grieving people is something that creates or contributes to this complicated grief is people's religious beliefs. Mm. So if your teenage son died by suicide and you believe that all suicides go to hell, your grief process is going to be much more difficult. Because not only are you grappling with all the normal parts of grief, but now you've got this big religious thing screaming at you and you're spending all your time worried about not only is your son in hell, but if you go to heaven when you die, you're not going to be able to see him again. Uh. So that's just one example of the kinds of things that people encounter. And I was really amazed to find that there was not any research on this. There's a lot of research on complicated grief. It's a very popular topic. There's a lot of research on toxic theology, also very popular. But I didn't see anything that tied the two together. Interesting. Yeah. Can you talk, I mean, before you go on, can you talk a little bit more about toxic theology? Because not all, all, every listener may sure. be familiar with the term. So, um, there, toxic theology is any kind of theology that produces shame and guilt, which pretty much covers everything. <laughs> but, but more specifically, it has policies of separate separatism and isolation, which means our group is better than all the other people. We do not associate with the, uh, those other groups. So let's just look at fundamentalist Christians as an example, because that's where we see it most often. We're saved. Everybody else is going to hell. And um, in some of those sects, you know, they're not allowed to listen to secular music or watch TV or read you know, secular magazines, they're in a very, very insulated little pocket. That's one form of toxicity. Um, toxic theologies also condone emotional and psychic and spiritual abuse, just with some of the doctrines about divine punishment. If you don't do these things, you will be punished by God, either in this life or in the next life. Or if, or if you do do these other things, <laughs> same yeah. thing, same result. Yeah, and so um, uh, I, could, I could pull up my dissertation and look at all the key points, but those are pretty much the main ones. Is any theology that disempowers you 
to the point where you are not able to function in a healthy way, where you do not feel safe in this world um, hmm. and, and do not have a, a balanced or peaceful relationship with the divine, whatever that might look like for you. Um, a lot of it uh, goes into attachment theory, which is about um, in attachment theory, like a baby forms an, a bond to its parents or its caregivers. And depending on what that home life is like, if it's an abusive family, that baby's not going to have healthy attachments in its life mm -hmm. if it's not loved properly. Well, what we tend to do in Western culture is we form that kind of attachment to our image of God. And so if God is an abusive parent or an unpredictable fickle parent who sometimes loves you and sometimes doesn't and mm -hmm. set and you have to earn the love of that parent but the parent keeps moving the bar so you never know what you're supposed to do to actually earn that love because it keeps changing then you're going to have a an anxious and conflicted relationship with God and so that's what a lot of toxic theology is too interesting so um so the the moving bar is is produced presumably by the people who are enculturating uh, a child or you know or someone um into the the world of that particular uh theological viewpoint right because they're the ones who are who who would be who would be who you could you know articulate as moving the bar of what's what what people are trying to um, you know the the rules that guide mm -hmm. behavior. It comes from family and community and and church. So here's a perfect example. So you're a little kid and you grow up in a, a religious family in a church and you're told all the time that God loves you. Mm -hmm. Then one day you come out as gay and all of a sudden God doesn't love you anymore. Uh. Right? They're telling you something completely different. Or any of the other things. Or you do just a, you know, any old thing that a human being does. Mm -hmm. um, and you're going to be getting these conflicting messages that you're never good enough. I mean, even a child who hasn't even done anything in the world yet or even established an identity, on the one hand, you're told that God is good and God loves you so much. On the other hand, in Sunday school, you're hearing this, these horrible stories of God wiping out all the tribes of the people that he doesn't like because he wants to make room for his one favorite tribe and Noah's Ark and all the kind of stuff that you get in Sunday school that gives you a completely different picture of God. Got it. So you're right, it is it is the culture and the family and the community that's moving the bar. Right. Although, but it gets projected onto this uh, omnipotent deity. Right. But, you know, one, one interesting thing that seems to be behind this that I want to peel back is that to frame uh, toxic, toxic theology, then it presupposes a either a non-toxic theology or a framework of what it means to be human and what, what is a uh, healthy, normal existence that um, is the basis by which one can even articulate toxic theology. So I'm curious if you, if you touch on that in the thesis, or if you have any thoughts on, okay, what what is the meta narrative here that from which we can uh, articulate toxic theology as a path that has problems? Right. I'm actually probably hearing my mouse clip 
clicking, I'm looking around because I want to find something. That's a really good um, explanation of that. So give me a second, I'm going to open it up. And Deepak Chopra mm-hmm. wrote, wrote a book. It's, it's not one of his popular books. It's called Life After Death, The Burden of Proof. Okay. And it's, it's, and it's my favorite book of his. He also has one called The Third Jesus, which is amazing. I mean, I'm not a Deepak Chopra fan, but I like some of this stuff. So if we're going to look at a model of what might be healthy theology mm-hmm. to compare toxic theology, here's what he says. He uses this uh, <clears throat> when looking at the idea of Satan. So a toxic view, we'll just use Satan as an example, is if if the culture believes in the Satan myth, and the healthy view is a culture is aware of how myths are made. So it's really the difference between literalism and non-literalism. So if you understand that the story that you're looking at, like Noah's Ark, for instance, is a myth and not a historical fact, that's a healthy theology versus if you think that it's a historical fact and God really wiped out the whole earth because he was so unhappy with everybody, that's not healthy. Um, uh, in a toxic theological system, people give value to that myth. They judge behavior by it. They build communities around it versus in a healthy theology. The myth is recognized as being different than the meaning myth versus meaning. So people are aware of the meaning un- underneath the myth and take responsible, uh, responsibility for their own behavior. Toxic theology, we have um, guilt and, and sin project, you know, blamed on demons and Satan instead of coming from ourselves, which stops our ability to heal ourselves. Where in a healthy way, uh, we are aware of our inner strengths and our inner resources to heal ourselves, so we believe in forgiveness and healing versus punishment. Um, let's see, what else does he say here? Um, in a toxic theology, I'm going to quote Chopra's words here, wrongdoing accumulates without a means for finding forgiveness, atonement, or purification. And in a healthy theology, we have outlets for negative energies, and we use tools like therapy, dialogue, ritual, uh, physical uh, exercise, body work, dream work, all this kind of stuff. And then finally, back to demons. You know, in a, in a toxic theology, you raise children with the fear of demons and supernatural powers that are out to get them. And in a healthy theology, you wouldn't do that. Hmm. So that's, that's just one definition. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, that, that 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 helps. So, so basically, from 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 that, then you can draw the contrast of uh, of the impact of a toxic theology on the uh, grieving process. Yeah, exactly. And and so, for instance, I have I've worked with clients who, uh, and and it's not even about grief and loss in, in terms of mourning a death. Like for example, I have this one case where it's a little girl who was removed from her family home because she was being molested by her father. When she was nine years old, she was put into foster care. The foster parents were heavy-duty Christians who believed that anger is from Satan. 
Well, this little nine-year-old girl was understandably very angry. She'd been raped by her father her whole life and now moved into this new home. And as any nine-year-old would do, she acted out and expressed her anger. And the foster family would, you know, punish her for this and say, you cannot feel anger. It's, it's Satan that's making you act that way. You must resist it. Satan is turning you away from Jesus. Anger is from Satan. You see that all the time. Yeah. And, and that is grief. That little girl is grieving. She's grieving the loss of her innocence and her childhood and her sense of safety in the world. Well, this all, this all makes sense. I want to I I take a slight tangent just for a moment because this is a, a, a thing that, that came up for me as, as you were talking about myth. And, um, and one of the things that I think our culture has a... a, a there's there's some shallow, relatively shallow views of myth in our culture, which is myth is a story that's not true that got told for various purposes. And while there's there are there's aspects of, uh, of that which are true, um, I wanna I wanna offer a, a different view. There's been some recent uh, there's a recent book out. Um, about how the um, uh, uh, native cultures of the far north of North America, um, Inuit cultures, um, inculcate a um, a pattern of behavior where anger does not, for the most part, get expressed. It's not that people don't feel anger, but they don't express it because in that culture, traditionally, um, as they would put it themselves, anger is does not help. Expressing anger does not help. It doesn't get the job done, and just surviving in that culture is very difficult, right? So there, they, you know, there's been an, uh, some research looking at how they do that. The way they do it is, um, you never, uh, an adult never yells or shames, yells at or shames a child. What they do instead is tell them a story about. Well, if you go near the, the water, which is very dangerous for a child in this Arctic environment, then then this um, this uh, you know uh, evil creature is going to grab you and pull you down and take you away and make you live with another family or something like that, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So the adults understand that this is a story that you tell kids in pla in place of invalidating their experience. And kids love stories. They understand their their experience of life, when articulated through stories, can be very positive. So I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say is that that um, you could call this, you know, an anthropologist going there uh, a century ago would have called this a myth. This story that you tell kids, that when you're an adult, you realize is a way to to um, create a context where people understand that certain behaviors are just going to be too dangerous to allow kids to manifest. And you don't yell at the kid to, to get them to stop. You don't shame them. Um, you don't invalidate uh, what they experience, but you tell them a story that contextualizes it differently. So um, so I just want to th wanted to throw this in there because, because um, I think our, our you know, generally speaking, we think of myth as as something that's not true, 
and it's a story that uh, doesn't have any uh, uh, that that we ought to that that we ought to um, uncover the truth and only and only live by that. But I guess I guess um, I you know I just wanted to add this little this little nugget of myth is not necessarily untrue stories basically right yeah no that's that's right on we need to take a short break at the hour you are listening to the mystical positivist i'm your host Stuart goodnick joining me is co-host rob schmidt this week on the show rob and i present a pre-recorded skype conversation with reverend terry daniel m-a-c-t c-c-t-p a clinical chaplain, ordained interfaith minister, and end-of-life educator. Her work is to help the dying and the bereaved find healing through meditative, ceremonial, and therapeutic processes that focus on inner transformation rather than external events. She is the author of three books, A Swan in Heaven, Embracing Death, A New Look at Grief, Gratitude, and God, and Turning the Corner on Grief Street. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Talia Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. In this hour, we continue our pre-recorded Skype conversation with Reverend Terry Daniel, M-A-C-T-C-C-T-P, a clinical chaplain, ordained interfaith minister, and end-of-life educator. Her work is to help the dying and the bereaved find healing through meditative, ceremonial, and therapeutic processes that focus on inner transformation rather than external events. She is the author of three books, A Swan in Heaven, Embracing Death, A New Look at Grief, Gratitude, and God, and Turning the Corner on Grief Street. I think it's a misconception that most people have is that myth is bad because it isn't true. Mm-hmm. But, you, you know, when you study it a little bit, you realize that myth has a lot of value because it unifies a community. Mm-hmm. It establishes, like, sets of, of moral codes yep. and, and boundaries for safety, like your story. And so it's, I think the difference is, you know, you could say there's a to- toxic mythology and healthy mythology. So it, mm-hmm. the one that you're describing is does not shame the child. Right. It it doesn't say if you go in the water, God's going to punish you and you're going to you know be punished forever after you die, which is something that can't be proven. So that's why it's placed in the afterlife instead of in this life. Um, and I think that Native people generally do understand how these stories work because story is such a big part of our culture mm-hmm. I mean of their culture and so I you know I imagine that the little kids growing up probably really do think there's a monster in the water mm-hmm. and I think that's a great way to keep them away from the water I would certainly use that if it was my kid and eventually they grow up and they kind of like Santa Claus right exactly. except the, the difference with Santa Claus is there's judgment and shaming with Santa Claus 
That's good, true. The good, yeah. the good little girls and boys get the presents and the bad right. ones don't. Right. <laughs> yeah, and so the Santa Claus myth, kids grow out of that. They finally figure out it's not true, but they're left with the shaming thing. Right. right. Where with, with the one that you told about the kid going near the water, there's no shaming in there at all. Right. So that's a, a good definition. Do you guys ever see the movie? I think it was called The Village about um, these people who lived in this remote area in the woods and created their own little life and their little village in kind of almost like from the 17th century. Hmm. And, um, and I, don't want to, I don't even know if that's what it was called, but, and I don't want to give away the ending, but okay. they, they had this myth that kept kids from wandering too far out of the village. Uh. If, you go, if you go past that line of trees, there are these monsters in there that will get you. Mm-hmm. And and none of the people ever went past the line of trees. And the reason they didn't want them to go there is because they were actually living in the modern world. And if you went too far beyond the trees, you'd be out the freeway. I think I, I remember that uh, 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 movie coming out. I haven't seen it, though. That's a, I just blew the whole thing. That was a big spoiler right there. But it's a great movie. And, um, yeah, and there was no shaming in that myth. Either. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, so so going back to just the the work you do then, I uh with this specialty and with this study and understanding when you work with people who are going through a grieving process and you find this uh toxic brew mixed in there, how do you address that? How do you how do you uh, bridge that gap or how do you help help people return to what might be a more natural uh, grieving process? That's a great question. Um, I will start by saying what I don't do is I don't try to talk them out of their belief at all, mm-hmm. but I hand the belief back to them and, and get them to describe it to me and, and so that they are going through a, a process of reflection, which they've probably already done, but in having them talk about the belief in the beginning kind of helps them see where the holes are in it. And so one example that I have is uh, when I was a chaplain in the hospital, there was a man who was just diagnosed with a terminal disease. He was in his late 60s maybe. Mm-hmm. And he um, was young to be facing death from this disease. And he felt he was terrified about going to hell. Because he, he said, you know, I was a sinner all my life. Um, I did really bad things. and But then I became a Christian, and I was saved. And now that I'm facing death, I don't know if that being saved thing really works or if it really sticks. <laughs> and I'm afraid that I'm really going to go to hell anyway. Hmm. And so what I did with him is I said, okay, well, tell me, tell me about your faith. Tell me about your belief system. So he tells me the belief that once you're saved and you accept Jesus, you're basically excused for all your sins, and you will go to heaven as long as you believe in Jesus. And so, and I say to him, do you believe this? And he goes, yes, I'm a Christian. Of course I believe this. So then I would say, well, then what's the problem? Right. You're good to go. You're covered. And that's when he would have to sit and go, oh, wait a minute, actually, now that I think about it, maybe I don't really believe this. And, and that's when the opening is there to start inter- introducing him to other ways of looking at it. 
is it a case that you find that people particularly I imagine this is especially true in an end of life situation but probably also in grieving situations where people are confronting deep loss that there is an intuition or a natural intuition of what we might call a more natural or more uh, uh, you know yeah, yeah let's just say natural theology and what people really need in terms of guidance is permission to explore and because when you know they have these feelings or like this gentleman that you described he has an intuition that needs examining but the context of the toxic theology precludes examination because it really subsists on reassertion of its uh, uh, doctrine Exactly. Yeah. So that's one of the characteristics of toxic theology is that questioning is absolutely forbidden. And not only is questioning forbidden, but practicing or or even using language or concepts from any other theological system is also forbidden. Mm, Yeah. And there's a whole thing going on now about yoga in, in Christian communities that's just so sad and comical if it wasn't so funny I mean so pathetic Um, Pat Robertson, maybe you heard this was quoted as saying yoga is bad for Christians because it forces you to speak in Hindu (laughs) I didn't hear that particular (laughs) I've heard that that there are Christian critiques of yoga but I hadn't heard that particular it's, it's claim fas- it's fascinating Google Google it he actually said that and it, it it forces you to become a Hindu because you're using Hindu words ah, yeah. and if you're and if you're speaking Hindu words then you're worshiping Hindu gods wow. and 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 God doesn't want you to do that so kind of coming off of that there's this whole movement of you know Christians against yoga and um, uh, this is something I actually found and put into my dissertation. Um, there's a woman who has gotten very famous teaching something called Christian yoga. Oh my and, gosh. And if you look at her website, um, it's called Praise Moves. Praise Moves. Uh-huh. Praise Moves. Beautiful. Praise Moves. And she uses all the normal asanas, all mm-hmm. the postures, the exact same postures, but she's renamed them after scripture passages. So in, in, in English, of course. In English, yes. Yeah. So if you, uh, I, I don't even, I'm not much of a yoga person, so I don't know the actual words for the postures. But if you look at a pose like um, tree pose, I don't know what it is in the native language, she will call that, uh, you know, John the Baptist pose or something so she, she she's named every one of the poses after something from the bible even though they are the actual poses from actual yoga this is hilarious it's hilarious i never heard of this no i know this you know this is the fun stuff that i was able to dig up in some of my research praisemoves.com oh, wow okay wow well this this is the reason for doing research right here. <laughs> It's really, it's hilarious. And and she calls it Christian yoga. And so they're doing the actual, you know, I just kind of wonder what happens metaphysically. If you're doing yoga postures and you're breathing and you're doing everything 
right or correctly, I assume, but your mind is focused on Bible passages. I don't suppose it does any harm. Well, I don't know. I mean, but if you wanted real authenticity, wouldn't you go to Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus probably spoke? Or I suppose Hebrew, and you just use Hebrew words, uh, you know. Um, it's just, it's just. I mean, the logic is just hilarious that you would use English words right. from the Bible. Right, and you would use English hilarious. at all. Exactly. Right, and so this woman's a good example of what we were talking about, you know, appropriation. I mean, yeah. she, you know, and how does she, is she even trained as a yoga teacher? Probably not. You know, and if she was really trying to connect yoga to Christian doctrines, you could probably find a pretty cool connection there by staying with real, true, ancient traditions. Because, you know, I happen to believe that Jesus did spend time in India and Tibet and probably hung out with yogis and probably knew some of that stuff. So there probably is a place where you can connect those two things in a very meaningful way. Yeah, I, I think the, uh, uh, but more to our point, the, the whole purpose or the, the logic of it is a, a is kind of a logic of exclusion. Yeah. And that, that you can't possibly partake of another tradition because it threatens the uh, hegemony of the belief system, you know, the Christian belief system. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's, exactly one of the definitions of toxic theology. Here's a, here are a couple other ones. I'm pulling it out of the document here. You know, uh, an authoritarian power that demands obedience, policies of separatism, restricted access to outside sources of information. Obviously, I'm reading this right now. A threat-based reality and psychological mind control techniques that encourage isolation. It's mostly the isolation yeah. and the denial of other cultural realities. Well, it sounds like modern politics. Yeah, well, they're pretty pretty close these days. Well, and, I'm just, go ahead. Uh, and the other thing that's interesting is, you know, non-religious spiritualities can be toxic, too, like we were talking about earlier with The Secret. Mm, and, yeah. and some of this woo-woo stuff is also toxic. I think that that law of attraction, the way the secret taught it and the way people understand it, is extremely toxic. It's the right. same guilt, shame. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I've, I've uh, uh, long been aware of this, this whole, um, uh, the, the, the problem with blaming people, essentially, who are ill, who are physically ill, um, because they haven't drawn the right experience into their lives it's just it's it's um it's it's a it's a uh, it creates more suffering that's all yeah and it's also you know here you get into this weird circular logic um that's like if you create health and wealth and love by thinking the right thoughts and doing the right things how do you explain all the billions of people that are starving and sick and suffering in the world? Are they all thinking wrong? And, and that is very similar to what you see in Judeo-Christian theology, where they actually do think that all those people in the world are thinking wrong, which is why they have missionaries, which is yeah. why they go to third world countries and try to convert people. Or, or, or if you look at uh, traditional uh, uh, 
expressions of uh, uh, Hindu culture where you have a caste system, then it's just the natural order that certain people suffer. And there's, it's not even that they're thinking wrong. It's just that they're in a, in a certain caste, and they, they, uh, there's no possibility. And, and is that just randomly assigned? It's just random. You just happen to be born into a certain caste, or does that have to do with uh, past life? I think it, I think there's a, a logic of past lives that uh, yeah. essentially your experiences in this life are a consequence of your past life, which is even almost worse because you're, you're, uh, you can't even redeem yourself by actions in this life because you're paying for your mistakes in a past life. You know what? This is a perfect segue to talk about the workshop coming up. Oh, perfect. It so um, I teach a workshop called Grief as a Mystical Journey. I teach that all over the country. And this particular one is different because my dear friend, Dr. Linda Backman, is going to be in town in Sebastopol. She is a, um, uh, a regression therapist. I don't actually, I really don't, I mean, she's a, uh, I should look at the flyer so I can tell you exactly what she is. She's a psychotherapist and she does regressions. And for the last 30 years, she's been working with past life regressions. I've never taught a class with her before, so I'm super excited about it. So the first half of the day is going to be my grief workshop, and the second half is going to be her regression workshops, which is, uh, which is called Bereavement and Past Life Trauma. And what she's going to be working with is looking into past life events and experiences and relationships to see how that informs the mourning and grieving experience that you're having today. So that will be in the afternoon, and in the morning will be my typical grief workshop, which does a lot of processes for moving grief through the body. So when we're really in heavy grieving, you know how you can feel it like your broken heart right in your physical chest? You mm -hmm. can actually feel that. It's because you really are holding it there in your heart chakra and in your chest where you breathe because your breath is really kind of constricted when you're in heavy grief like that. So we do a lot of processes to open that up in the body and uh, some of those processes um, are art therapy. We do a beautiful process called drawing a picture of your grief landscape. And uh, we do breath work and movement work and sacred ceremonies. So, for example, without going into too much detail, we'll take those pictures that everybody draws uh, at one point in the workshop and we burn them in a ceremonial fire. Uh, we also use personal sacred objects that we put on an altar, and uh, we do here talk about cultural appropriation. We do the Peruvian shamanic process called making a kintu, where we take rose petals and we blow into the rose petals very hard, just <sighs> into the rose petals, all our pain and all the stuff that we're holding in us. And this is part of the breath work. And now the rose petals contain the energy of that pain. It's no longer in us. Hmm. We've put it into this other object. And then we, we go outdoors and we make um, a little ceremonial space with the rose petals. And we pour water over it to purify that energy. We give it to the earth because the earth can hold that heavy energy much better than our little frail bodies 
10. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that we do in the workshop. And I can't say much about what Linda does because I have never been to her workshop. But I know that she teaches it all over the world and people adore her and it's going to be great. And and, and it's I presume that uh, one doesn't necessarily have to enter into that work with a metaphysical commitment to past life realities or not. That uh, it, it is, it, it can be taken literally or metaphorically, but the energetic process is uh, very powerful. I I would agree with that completely. Though in terms of marketing, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way because <laughs> <laughs> because when people see past life. They think of reincarnation, and if they're not into that, they're not going to respond. So, um, but Linda has an amazing following. She gets a lot of people, so I think that a lot of people do embrace the idea of past lives. Well, just I mean, just because I mean, I I don't know whether there are past lives with the certainty that I know that I'm drinking a cup of, or I have a cup of tea right next to me right now, and yet there's evidence. That you can, uh, that is suggestive of that, right? So you don't have to have a, a, a commitment either way necessarily. It seems to me. To I that. would. I agree. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I have never um, really paid a lot of attention to my own past lives because to, I've seen people get too hung up on it. Mm-hmm. Just like people get too hung up on their past experiences in this life, and they blame their parents, for example, for everything that's. Right. wrong in their life. Like, I had a terrible childhood, and therefore, I'm going to be a jerk. Right. And, you know, because my parents treated me bad, it, it becomes a kind of a crutch. And I, I'd be very interested in knowing more about my past lives. I have an intuitive sense about some of them just by knowing who I am and what I'm drawn to in this life. And mm-hmm. I'm, satis- I'm satisfied with that knowledge. I don't feel the need to go much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Though I, I certainly wouldn't reject the opportunity, which is why I'm really excited about being in Linda's workshop, because mm-hmm. I'd like I'd like to see where it goes. Sure. You know. Yeah. Well, I, and and yeah, for myself, I think my sense of past lives is uh, uh, a little bit. I, I my my intuition is that it it is more complicated or uh, more nuanced than we think in the sense of uh, this idea of a linear progression of my identity as I experience it now may not be the case. I mean, there may be, you know, it may be that all past lives are simultaneously happening. It may be that simultaneously there are uh, parallel lives that are uh, energetically equally informative of my current experience. And that at some level I'm connected to the lives of everyone and partake of that experience as well. And so where do I draw the line? I like that. I like that view. That makes a lot more sense to me. Uh, boy, I wish Linda was here in this conversation. I asked her to join us, but she's off teaching a class somewhere. It would be great to have her input on this. I, I agree with you. I sort of see it as my soul, my consciousness has been around for an infinite amount of time and has accumulated experience in many realms of existence, not all physical. So that I think the, what we experience in the interlife, which is Michael Newton's term instead of afterlife, which I like better, the interlife, the space between lives, is just as important as what we experience when we're incarnated in physical bodies. 
and, and who knows what forms we've ever taken. And you know, this is interesting because it, this is something I talk about a lot too. It's so, so culturally subjective. Um, there's a, a guy by the name of Gregory Shushin who's just uh, written a fabulous academic book on um, death and afterlife, no, near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences as reported throughout history and throughout culture, mm -hmm. mostly in, in indigenous cultures. And um, we learn from this that everyone has a cultural framework for what they experience outside of the body. So, for example, in the Zulu culture, they believe that you can be incarnated, reincarnated as an animal, but only a chief can incarnate as a lion. Hmm. So why do they have this idea? Probably because somewhere in the history of that tribe, somebody died and was resuscitated and had an experience in the interlife and came back to tell about it. And in that near-death experience, he said, I went to the other world and I saw our chief. He was a lion. And everyone goes, oh, yeah. So they build that into the cultural story. Mm. Right? I mean, that's where I think, you know, we get all our images of this. You would not have that same story from a, a Christian who died and came back in Kentucky. Right. So, right. so it's, it's all culturally influenced. Yeah, I, I think that... that Again, you know what's what's interesting about that uh, view is that it it does suggest that there is an objective uh, frame with which you can hold more of those views in a uh, coherent totality. And I, I suppose the invitation of conversations like this is how do we get closer to that perspective so that we uh, have as broad a view as possible? Yeah. Well, and that's and you know back to this is why we borrow from other cultures. And I think if, if nothing else, looking at the other cultural views will tell us that our view isn't the only view. And well, maybe that's all we need to know. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's, I'm glad you, you raised this point because, uh, you know, you pointed out early in the conversation that that's, that this multicultural perspective is central to your work. And um, and you were you were uh, relating it uh, at one point you related it to you know the the wealth of information you can get online, like talking about YouTube you know uh, videos of, of various um, indigenous processes and stuff like that and rituals that people would engage in. But <clears throat> it seems to me that what's been happening for the last 500 years is this slow and gradual and now <laughs> uh, quite rapid uh, exchange of information cross-culturally in the world. I mean, it used to be that it wasn't that easy to travel and get cross-cultural perspectives 2,000 years ago. People did it, and actually, you know, actually, I think one of the things that archaeology is starting to show is that actually, tr you know, uh, that sort that sort of travel was not that it was not as unusual as we think, but nevertheless, the images you were in your village and you never left your village, uh, you know, um, at a certain point in prehistory. Um, but but now we have access to this, you know, in, incredible cornucopia of information 
cross-culturally um, available. And, um, and that's a different situation for the human species. We haven't had that before. And it's, it's arisen over, you know, gradually over time. I mean, we, could, we, we rightly disparage colonialism, and yet the, the um, exchange of information that, that European colonization and colonialism uh, generated also created this context of, of you know, uh, exchange of cultural information. And, we're, and we're, we're far from getting it right in terms of mutual respect, but we're moving in that direction, it seems to me, or at least what I can hope that that's true. Well, yeah, I think some of us are moving toward mutual respect, and about 30% of us in America are moving more <laughs> and more into hate. Yeah, well, because I mean, of it. yeah, I, 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 and I understand it, and, and the hate is, is, I think, arises primarily out of fear. That's, that's my, mm -hmm. my general belief, and yet I don't, I can't, I can't uh, gainsay what you just said. Yeah, you know? it's, it's a pretty scary topic. Um, yeah. Interesting what you said about 2,000 years ago about people doing cross-cultural travel. It, it was more common than we thought, especially in the Holy Land, because we had the Silk Road that yeah. went into Jerusalem from, from China and India, and merchants were traveling that road all the time, and that's how Christianity spread was people walking around the Roman Empire and beyond telling these stories about Jesus. And, and look at how popular that became. So, and <laughs> yeah, that, And that's how Buddhism uh, uh, certainly spread traditionally. Yeah. And, and there's, there's quite a lot of new research and evidence, perhaps indirect evidence, that there was more of a conversation between uh, the Vedic traditions and the Western, you know, Greek philosophers and the like, such that what we think of as these isolated streams of philosophical thought may have actually had more robust connections than we suspect. I certainly think so. And I think, you know, the, the story about Jesus going to India makes a lot of sense when you start looking at certain things. Like, if you look at the Bible story, uh, which, you know, the story of Jesus was not written down in real time. There were no eyewitnesses writing about it. The earliest gospel was written 50 years after he died by somebody who didn't even know him. Um, so the stories are, are not actual historical stories. Anyway, according to the stories, Jesus knew more than the rabbis when he was 12 years old, right? That's the story. He was in the temple talking to them, and his mother had to come and drag him away. If you were him, if you were Jesus, or you were his parents, and you had this kid who was like so spiritually advanced and so smart, smarter than the rabbis, you wouldn't want him to sit in that crappy little village and do nothing for the rest of his life. You'd want him to go get an education. So on the next caravan going east, you'd get him to hitch a ride on a wagon and go to another part of the world where he could learn and study, which explains the missing years of his life, missing from the story. Where was he during those years? Another theory about that is that the wise men who came from the East were spiritual teachers, gurus, or, or you know, advanced beings of some kind who, who recognized that somebody special was being born and, and came to do that. And when he was 13, he went back 
to India or to Tibet or wherever they came from to study with them. I mean, there's all these wonderful stories about this, well, and it makes perfect sense to me. Well, I mean, even even without um, you know uh, making a statement about that, I mean, we there's there was just very recently a few weeks ago this new um, uh, analysis of megalithic tombs, like we're talking about five or six thousand years ago in Europe. And I, I, people may not, they've probably seen pictures of these giant stones that are put up um, in tumuli. Sometimes they're, sometimes they're, um, uh, you know, encased in, in earth, and other times it would be like Stonehenge, you can imagine Stonehenge, that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, there's been this recent uh, research of, of uh, which has dated this stuff, and it looks like the, there was a cultural moment in what's now northwestern France, which then spread out, almost certainly spread along by sea by by sea routes to um, the Medit- around the Iberian Peninsula into uh, the Mediterranean area, over to England, um, eventually up into Scandinavia. And it was like this this period of a couple thousand years where where these um, megalithic tombs uh, where people were were buried and interred and there were different practices that changed over time. But nevertheless, the point is that that there was enormous religious influence circulating literally many thousands of years ago um just in europe that's 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 this the scope of this particular study but we can imagine that that was happening in in the, across the world as well so people have been moving around and um and circulating ideas and practices and even practices that would create these these monuments on the landscape for a long period of time and and if we don't take that seriously then we're we're missing something important about about what it means to be human, and how we exchange information and practices and ideas. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's happening now is we're we're still sharing and traveling like that, but we're doing it digitally. Yeah. So you know, so the whole world. Well, that was what was interesting to me about the comments you made earlier. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know we're we're doing digital travel and it's just it's so beautiful to have this i mean if we you know let, let's talk about politics a little bit just for a minute just the fact that we have a more diverse congress right now for the first time ever is just mind-blowing to me yeah. and you know it's the very thing that that the haters hate but that the rest of us just you know bow down in gratitude for that we have Muslims and brown people, you know, in in the government and in places of power, and we, it's so important for us to work to make this the norm, and, and to not let this get taken away. Yeah, from I, well, I think the um, uh, paradoxically the fear that you see on uh, the what I call the extreme right about that kind of phenomenon is itself an intuition about the consequences of the treatment that uh, uh, you know our, our uh, majority society had on people of color and and 
and I think somewhere down there there's a sense that uh, you know we're going to get what we gave and, mm. and, and so I think that even grounded in that resistance and that fear is a uh, uh, there is a knowing of an injustice and the problem is that the way that it's dealt with is through denial and through anger and through separation but there is a knowing and and somehow if we can touch that you know with a more human conversation that maybe there's a possibility of bridging a gap here well you know and, and maybe there's not and that's you know a whole other conversation you know that that I have often had about saving the world you know um, people ask me sometimes in my workshops you know what do I think about global warming and things like that and I have a view that's not terribly popular which is you know I like to take the 30,000 miles from space view of everything and and say that to me this is a planet like any other there are billions and just because we're on it doesn't mean that this one is special or has special protection planets come and go all the time they they species become extinct planets you know overheat or freeze or blow up or get hit by asteroids or whatever happens to planets and whatever's going to happen to this one is going to happen to this one eventually whether we're on it or not so i i feel that we can all do what we can do within our own sphere of influence but as far as stopping the planet from going away i think that's an attachment fear of death kind of thing mm -hmm. that that a lot of people have that I don't have. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it, it is, at one level, what's going to happen is going to happen. And um, the... Or what, or what is happening right. is happening. Mm -hmm. it, it, it is happening. But, but you know, the other, the other thing I find gratifying <laughs> about the conversation at all is the growing awareness of consequences of actions. And so much of human history is uh, story after story of activities in which the broader context of the consequences of actions is completely ignored. And mm -hmm. I get, uh, there's an example I have. I think it may be the Galapagos Islands. Uh, I may have the island chain. Uh, I may be misremembering this, but there are no trees on the island. <laughs> That's Easter Island. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Easter Island. Thank you. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and so there's no trees on the island, and the uh, um, and tr there used to be trees on the island, <laughs> and they were cut down in part, you know, as uh, uh, transport for some of the large stone uh, images that were created. But you have to wonder what went through the people's minds when they cut the last tree down. Yeah, and didn't they know about propagation? I mean, you would think that people who lived in the natural world like that would know that you have to leave some trees in order for baby trees to grow. Um, how did they not know that? Right. That, but, I, that's, I guess that's the big question. But, yeah, but it's like eventually there, there were fewer trees, and maybe people got used to that, and then there were fewer more trees mm -hmm. until finally there were no trees. And yeah. that... that we're certainly in the process of recreating that the way that uh, uh, if you don't consider the consequences of uh, you know producing lots of plastic for uh, you know uh, fast food and things like that. On the other hand, 
because of this communication network that we've been talking about, there's also an interesting possibility where there can be a cohesive response from all over the world that could possibly uh, change outcomes. And I, th I find that fascinating. I, I don't know how it's going to come out from the 30,000 view, a 30,000 uh, mile view, as you said. In some ways, it doesn't matter how it comes out because uh, it's just part of the uh, flux of life uh, throughout right. this universe. On the other hand, as a participant in this in this moment, it's fascinating to see the possibility because any time there is conversation that broadens our awareness, I think that's a good conversation. Absolutely, and you know there there are things that can be done to slow down the process of global warming. I think it or climate change. I think it would be happening even if we were never here on Earth because it's already happened. A few times, yeah. the climate changes. That's what she does. That's what Mother Earth does. You know, she she heats and cools and heats and cools, just like we all do. So it would it would be happening even without us. But we're certainly contributing to it, and we can certainly tone down the level of that contribution. You know, but what would it take? Would it it would take removing 20 million cars from the road, and that's just not going to happen. And, you know, but there's other things, you know, using solar and, and environmental protections on emissions and all that kind of stuff. But in the bigger picture, I mean, I'd love to see a world conscious enough to take that kind of action. And there are countries that do. I mean, there are, there are conscious political structures in this world, as we've just seen in New Zealand with that wonderful woman, Prime Minister. Yeah. And it's, uh, 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 it, there's no guarantee. And... Uh... Hence the uh, tension and hence the uh, opportunity for uh, uh, fear and anxiety. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, there's one area that I wanted to return to that we, we touched on a little bit, and this was um, how you were describing that you are able to speak to someone who is enmeshed in a uh, toxic th theological point of view and how you don't enter into that conversation by trying to change their view, but simply ask them to reflect on the view and to uh, uh, maybe speak to the emotional incoherencies that that view creates in them. And, mm -hmm. and the reason I want to get back to that is that it's, it's, that's such a great paradigm, and I've heard you speak about this before, but it's such a great paradigm about how we have spiritual conversations <clears throat> and how we have conversations about some of these issues, even political issues, where uh, there seem to be these uh, insurmountable gulfs uh, between us. Yeah. Um, well, having spiritual conversations like that is something that in chaplaincy we are heavily trained in that kind of conversation of, you know, not judging, not guiding, not teaching, just creating a space where the person can do the reflection on their own. In political conversations, I heard somebody make a great suggestion the other day is, you know, when you're having a political conversation with someone you disagree with, you just say to them, I don't agree with you, but I'm listening. Mm -hmm. And just by saying that you're listening kind of puts them at ease and yeah. makes them feel respected rather than disrespected. Um, but getting off of politics, um, yeah, what happens with these um, people who are coping with toxic theologies, 
if someone's struggling with that with grief and they come to me for counseling or for a workshop, they are already aware of the cognitive dissonance. Yeah. They already see the holes in the fabric. So they're ready to try something new. And, and what I usually do to introduce them to that is ritual and ceremony and, and guided meditation that can provide, starting with meditation, to provide language and form of prayer that does not contain toxic imagery or language. Hmm. So they might be used to prayer as uh, imploring a man in the sky to look kindly upon them. Please, God, please take away my cancer. Please, God, please help me to not feel this pain of grief. And so that kind of begging and pleading of somebody who has power over you is kind of a toxic imagery and toxic language. So what I would give them instead is other forms of prayer and language to use that is not so disempowering, um, where they're going internally to their own resources, where you can just go deeply into your breath. And the language that you use is, hello, grief. Hello, pain. I see you there. I feel you. I honor you. I will work with you. I will give you my faith and my love and know that we can work together to, to be in this experience and to heal. Some, something like that. That would be my prayer. And that way you're not talking to a third party to intervene. You're talking to your own heart. And then we would do some sort of ceremony to represent that. Um, uh, one ceremony that I've recently started doing since I last talked to you guys, I, uh, there's a wonderful teacher named Martine Prechtel. Mm-hmm. You know who he is? Yeah, you probably oh, yeah. have his book in your store. Um, he has this uh, ceremony that he teaches that when you're with a dying person and you're sitting next to the person, you take a piece of yarn or string about three or four feet long and you wind it up into a ball um, and you tell the story of the person's life. All the memories and love and experiences, you wrap it up into this little ball and then you put the ball on the person who's dying and it is buried or cremated with the person. So they carry their story to the next life with them. It's a really beautiful tradition. And so um, I appropriated that <laughs> from them, <laughs> and I changed it to, to do grief. And, in fact, I think I might even do this in my talk at, at your store next week, um, uh, where you tell your story of grief into this little ball that you wind up. And all your pain and all the stuff that you want to release from your body, all the trauma, all the anger, you wrap it up into this little ball, and then what we do is we go outside and we tie the end of the string to a tree, and the string unfurls, and it just hangs in the tree, and all that energy and all that pain is carried by the elements, the wind and rain and sun, into the spiritual realm. So it's been removed from your body, put into this ball of string uh, symbolically, and then carried away and, and dis dispersed to the elements. So that's the kind of stuff I would give to somebody who's struggling with the theological issues, a new 
kind of prayer and a new kind of ritual. Well, that's uh, uh, really, I appreciate that. And what comes up for me as you describe this is how this practice is really about moving energy or allowing energy to move in its natural flow. Uh, and that that you know healing in itself is sort of a movement of energy or a readjustment of energy, and that the the challenge that uh, and the blocks that we have to deal with are, are essentially those things, whether they're ideas, actions, uh, uh, unresolved emotional complexes, and things like that, that block that flow of energy. Yes, exactly. It's all about moving energy. It's all about, you know, moving energy from point A to point B, which is why ceremony is so important, because we use ceremonial objects. It can be anything. It can be a pencil, you know, just as a representation. Like, this pencil now holds my anger. And the anger stuck in my chest and my throat is making me physically ill, getting me ulcers or whatever. I'm going to blow it into this pencil and I'm going to take the pencil and I'm going to throw it in a river and let the river carry it away. Something as simple as that, by just using a representational object, will shift the energy. Hmm. Well, the other the other important thing about it, it seems to me, is the is the aspect of embodiment and um, and putting attention on the body. So if you're doing what what you just described, you're putting attention on, on a part of your body and then um, taking action with your body to change your relationship to that um, experience in your body. Yeah, I just um, completed a training in uh, trauma counseling uh, with the um, International Association of Trauma Professionals, and they said something that was really great. Trauma is not a psychological issue. It's physiological. Mm -hmm. Mm. It, It is in the body. Right. Even if we're just talking about the brain, you know, it's in your physical plant, if you will. And to work with trauma, you have to work with the body. And, you know, what this particular teaching is that you always start with relaxing the muscles in the physical body. Because a traumatized person is in a state of heightened agitation and vigilance all the time. That's what PTSD is, is that they never experience a moment where they're not in that state. Yeah. So just to get them to breathe and count to 10 takes them out of that state for 10 seconds and reprograms their you know, the neuroplasticity of their brain to see, oh, it's possible to not be in that heightened state for 10 seconds. Wow, I was just not in that state. For ten seconds, maybe I can do it for another ten seconds. Yeah. Well, we are uh, out of seconds for uh, uh, this particular <laughs> conversation. It's uh, uh, a shame because we could go on all day, but uh, uh, I do want just in a couple minutes here to uh, remind people uh, your next talk at Many Rivers, your next workshop, and then the next conference. So go ahead and t- give us Yeah, oh, the workshop. Okay, so the grief workshop and the past life regression we've been talking about is on Saturday, April 13th, and you can find that at spiritualityandgrief.com. Click on the link at the top of the page. It says Sebastopol. Also, two days before that, on April 11th, I will be uh, speaking with Linda Backman at my favorite store in Sebastopol, May Rivers. 
You have good taste. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Thursday at 7, 7.30-ish, Thursday the 11th, um, and that's free, so please come to that. And then the big thing every year is, of course, the Afterlife Conference, which I've been producing since 2010, and um, we totally forgot to talk about that, but please go to afterlifeconference.com and take a look at our 2019 conference it's going to be in Salt Lake City, which is a quick 90-minute affordable plane ride from Santa Rosa. Um, come to the conference. We've got uh, shamanic correct. Yeah, go ahead. What are the dates? Oh, June 4th through 7th in Salt Lake City. And we've got the most wonderful presenters. Um, we've got uh, my favorite guy this year is Brian Richards from Johns Hopkins, who does research on psychedelic therapy to relieve death anxiety. Great. So he's doing, you know, research at Johns Hopkins giving psilocybin to cancer patients. Oh, very cool. So we have that, and we've got the guy I mentioned earlier, Phil Borges, who goes and, uh, and studies the spiritual practices of indigenous cultures around the world. Plus we have grief counselors. We have Mitch Metzner doing a workshop on men and grief how men grieve, just tons of good stuff. So afterlifeconference.com. Well, thank you so much. That's uh, uh, We really appreciate your um, letting people know about the details of all this great stuff you're, you're up to right now, and we definitely appreciate the time you've taken to talk to us today on The Mystical Positivist. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you, you guys. Love you. Thank Later. you. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we've been playing a Skype conversation recorded on March 30th, 2019 with Reverend Terry Danielle M-A-C-T-C-C-T-P, a clinical chaplain, ordained interfaith minister, and end-of-life educator. Her work is to help the dying and the bereaved find healing through meditative, ceremonial, and therapeutic processes, that focus on inner transformation rather than external events. She is the author of three books, A Swan in Heaven, Embracing Death, A New Look at Grief, Gratitude, and God, and Turning the Corner on Grief Street. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, follow your dread to the mystical heart with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff meeting monthly on the first Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. at Mini Rivers Books and Tea. The next meeting is April 3rd, and that's 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove the cover, descend through the narrow drain, and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group work that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. No one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart. But to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost. We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. So in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Following your dread is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. 
Join us once a month at Mini Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about the realistic path to the mystical heart. And then, at Thursdays at Mini Rivers in Sebastopol, The Way Through, Entering a New Paradigm of Love on Earth with Sammy Vanek. That's Thursday, April 4th, 7.30 p.m., Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. The collective on Earth is entering a new paradigm, which is unlike any we have known in modern history. More and more of us are waking up to a greater truth of who we are. Four years ago, Sammy Vanek woke up to the truth that everything comes from within, and so he made his one and only commitment to follow the truth to wherever it would lead him. The evening will be a fun, easeful, and powerful dive into our true selves. Sammy will share his stories of travels in the world and within himself, all having arisen from saying yes to life. He will share the powerful and undeniable synchronicities and soaring insights in the honest suffering. Sammy Vanek is an explorer, an artist, a healer. He lives his life based on intuition, which has been a wild ride outside of convention. This choice has taken him all over the world in spontaneous and miraculous ways and within himself deeper than he knew was possible when he started out on this journey. After four years of dedication to this, he has now begun to share the radiant discoveries that have been made known to him. Above all, Sammy has discovered his passion and purpose to help guide us into the light of our soul. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.